0: Good morning. I have the scripture reading this morning from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. This is from the NIV version, and it's about a dead girl and a sick woman. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, Was dying as Jesus was on his way the crowds almost crushed him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years but no one could heal her she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped who touched me Jesus asked when they all denied it Peter said master the people are crowding and pressing against you but Jesus said someone touched me I know that power has gone from me Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, and he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Pray with me. God and Father, I pray now as we turn to your word that you would speak to us though we are sinful people. Pray that you would speak through me though I am a sinful person. Thank you that Jesus Christ loves to save and work through sinners and call them and build them up in himself. Pray this in his name. Amen. So why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Because first of all, I think we are. Some of us agree with that. Some of us maybe think, no, I'm not afraid of anything because we've been trained that that's how we're supposed to talk. But you think about like one of the classic fears of or one of the classic signs of fear is stress the way that we just feel stressed about things or another one is anger oftentimes anger is a sign that we're afraid of something and given how much time we spend either obviously afraid or stressed or angry i think it's a fair question for all of us to wrestle with why are we afraid Last week in our sermon, as we looked at two stories here in Luke chapter 8, we discussed the idea of the fear of God, and we did that in part because we saw in those stories the characters expressing an unhelpful sort of fear, and in this story we also meet more characters who are afraid, and so what I want us to do as we dive in is first we're just going to walk through these stories, and then we're going to take these stories as well as the ones we talked about last week. And address that question. Why are we afraid? First, the stories. So you need to understand as we dive in here, Jesus's ministry really divides up into three phases. There's this early phase of kind of obscurity where he's ministering in the fringes of society and people are just getting to know who he is. Then there's a middle phase of popularity when great crowds are coming out and he's kind of this celebrity preacher. And then there's this third phase of increasing opposition, especially from the religious leaders, that culminates in his crucifixion. And we are now securely in the middle of the second phase of Jesus's ministry. The crowds are coming and excited to hear him. And within that context, last week, we saw after preaching to these crowds that Jesus gets in a boat and he crosses the Sea of Galilee. And as he does, he's confronted by this great storm that almost sinks the boat. The disciples are terrified and Jesus simply says, peace, be still, and the waters are still. And then after that, he meets a man possessed by a legion of demons, and he casts the demons out of the man into a herd of pigs and delivers him. And then now they have crossed back over the Sea of Galilee into Israel and pick up in verse 40. It says, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So these great crowds that were out because of Jesus's popularity, even though he had gone away for a day, they've been waiting, looking around, trying to find him. And now they're excited to find him. And among those crowds, a particular man emerges in verse 41. There came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And following at Jesus's feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So we meet Jairus. He is, first of all, an important man. It says that he is a ruler of the synagogue, which is to say the synagogue was kind of the local church in the towns in ancient Israel. So you could think of him maybe as like an elder in the local church, and an important man about town, and his daughter is dying. And we can imagine, especially if you have kids, the kind of burden he feels as he goes and seeks out Jesus. So Jesus goes with Jairus, but there's an interruption to the story before he arrives at the girl's house. If you pick up in verse 42, it says, Jesus went, and as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So first, let's talk about this woman's Condition. It says a discharge of blood. That probably means something like uterine bleeding. And for her, of course, I think we understand, first of all, that this would be an embarrassing struggle to have and that it could have real health impacts for the woman in terms of losing blood. But in her world, it goes much deeper. I mean, in the first place, this might also be a sign of the fact that she struggles with infertility. And in our world, if you've struggled with that, you know the heartache and the, the hardness of that. And even more so in this world where having children is such an important part of being a member of society, that would be a burden for the woman. And even more than that, this discharge of blood would have made her ceremonially unclean. Uh, it's one of the things that would cause in Israelite law ceremonial uncleanness. And normally for a woman, that would be no big deal because you would simply Um, go through the purification rite, and then you are clean. But since this is an ongoing thing, it means that she would not be able to worship at the temple or participate in the religious life of Israel. And that probably also meant that she was socially rejected because that uncleanness was transmitted when people would touch you. And so people would probably avoid this woman because they didn't have to deal with the purification rituals. And on top of all of that, we learn that she is left in poverty because she has spent all of her money on doctors trying to get this condition healed. And she's probably deeply discouraged as any of you who have spent a long time with doctors who seem unable to help you. No. Know. So this woman is profoundly broken and isolated. So we meet this woman and here's what happens in verse 44. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So she comes up behind Jesus. She doesn't confront him, doesn't try to get his attention. And she just reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. Maybe that's uh, a lot of Israelites would wear these tassels on their robes, or maybe it's like the hem of his shirt or something. But she just reaches out and touches the edge of his garment, and she's healed. And she's trying to do this all in secret, but Jesus knows that something has happened. Verse 45, Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So Jesus knows that this woman has touched him, and he stops the crowd, stops the gyrus. You know, I mean you can imagine the whole thing kind of grinding to a halt as he looks around and asks who's touched him. And then finally, in verse forty seven, says that when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So notice this woman is afraid. Really, while it's not explicit earlier, I mean, she's probably been afraid for her whole life in the first place. And she was clearly afraid in the way that she approached Jesus, uh, you know, coming up behind him and just trying to touch his robe. And now she's trembling. She's terrified. You can only think maybe she thinks that Jesus is about to pull the rug out from under her, that she's been healed and that he'll take away her healing. And we might ask, seeing the woman's fear, why Jesus is doing this, why he's stopping the crowd and calling her out. After all, she has been healed. And there's probably two reasons in play. One is that Jesus probably wants to make sure that the woman understands what has happened. There is something about that's kind of superstitious about the way she approaches Jesus, right? And he wants to make clear to her that it's God through her faith that has healed her and not some weird magical property of his robes or something like that. But more than that, I think Jesus is also doing this for the woman because he recognizes that what she needs is a social restoration. Remember, because of her condition, people probably avoided her and had nothing to do with her. And again, in these small kind of towns, this would have just been a known thing for people. But Jesus, by publicly declaring this woman's healing, is letting all of society know that she is now somebody that they can and should have contact with. And more than that, he's publicly praising her, as we're going to see in the next verse. So Jesus recognizes that this woman needs more than just physical healing— which is why he stops the crowds and says these things. And then he speaks to her, verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Daughter, which is a, a familial word and, and um, almost never gets used by, by Jesus of people. This is one of the most intimate things he speaks to someone, this close sign of affection. Your faith has made you well, go in peace. So in this interlude, in this story of the woman that stops Jesus along the way, I think there's two things that we need to notice, two things we learn. First, we learn something important about Jesus. We learn about his care and concern for the least and the lowliest. His care and concern for those that society would not regard highly. And we see that in the contrast between Jairus and this woman. Jairus is an important religious leader. He's he's a man in in this society. Um, He's probably relatively well off. There's all these reasons that people would look at Jairus and understand why you would be concerned for him. And then there's this woman who is none of those things, but but Jesus stops the crowd in order to speak to and minister to this woman. I mean, can you imagine how Jairus is feeling in this moment? He has to feel frustrated and probably also fearful, as we'll see, because he's worried about his daughter, and here's Jesus helping this this nobody when he should be helping him. Jesus cares for all people simply because they are people. We've noted that pattern before, and it will be echoed over and over in his ministry. Jesus cares for all people simply because they are people. It doesn't matter if they are Pharisees or wealthy people or tax collectors or prostitutes and thieves. Jesus gladly spends time with and ministers to and heals and loves all people simply because they're people. And we need to be mindful of that in our attitude as well. A question I wrestle with sometimes, try to ask myself in my heart, is how many of my relationships am I in because of what they're doing for me? How many of my relationships am I in simply because of what they're doing for me? And look, I mean, it's, it's hard to be honest about that. It's probably more than we would like to admit. And it's true that all of us do that. But that is such a deeply sinful thing when we start choosing our friendships and choosing who we spend time with because of what we get out of it. That is to, to treat people like objects. That is to, to treat people, judge people based on the utility that they can offer to us rather than the dignity and goodness that God created them with. So we see Jesus's care and concern for all people. And then in, we also learn something about faith, I think. Because as Jesus points out, it's this woman's faith that made her well. And here's the question I want you to ask yourself. How much faith do you think it takes to experience God's deliverance? This woman is delivered by Jesus. How much faith do you think that it takes? See, behind that question, there's an assumption about faith and how it works. I think of it as we, we think of faith sort of like a jet plane engine. Uh, if, you, if you think about how airplanes work, or if you don't know, <laughs> here, here's, here's a very, very simple explanation, right? You have these jet, jet engines, and they, they start spooling up and you know, pulling harder and harder, and the plane moves forward, but the engine has to reach a certain point. The plane has to reach a certain point of acceleration from the engines before it starts to get lift, before it actually starts to lift up into the sky. And I think we think about faith that way, that there's some threshold of faith that we have to cross, and then somehow our prayers will reach up to heaven. Then somehow God will answer us. Now it is true that some people can have more and have less faith in scripture. That is a real thing. Jesus praises certain people. We're going to see a little bit later in Luke. He praises somebody for their great faith, uh, Faith is a spiritual gift. Paul prays that the church's faith would be increased. So it is true in one sense that faith can have a quantity and that it can be greater in some people than others. But the quantity of faith is never what earns something from God. It's never what earns God's deliverance. And this woman is such a wonderful picture of that because she in her broken, hard place, I mean, it's clear that she can only muster the tiniest little shred of faith, right? That she doesn't talk to Jesus. She doesn't even wanna be seen by him. She doesn't even try to touch his hand or something. It's just come up behind him, touch the hem of his robe, trusting and hoping that she will be healed. And God answers that kind of faith. See, faith is not, in terms of our salvation, in terms of God's favor, it's not something that you have to work up to a certain quantity of. It's simply a question of whether it's present or not. It's not like a jet engine. Instead, it's like the decision someone makes to get on an airplane. I have a friend who's terrified of flying, and they, ever since they were a kid, they had nightmares about it. I know they're just terrified of flying, but here's the thing. That friend, if they step across the threshold onto a jet airplane, if they get onto an airplane, they are going to fly to their destination just as surely as the seasoned traveler in business class who does this every day. That it doesn't matter that they're only mustering enough faith to get on the plane, it's still going to carry them where they need to go. And that is the reality of our salvation. Even faith as small as a mustard seed, Jesus tells us, is enough For God to move mountains. So we learn about Jesus and about faith. But of course, all of this is kind of an interlude, and we've got to be wondering about Jairus. So let's pick up in verse 49. It says, While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. If you're a parent, you can feel what Jairus is feeling. We've all felt those fears can't you i mean any of us can kind of imagine just how devastating that has to be what a gut punch he feels like he's had but jesus it says on hearing this on hearing the message from the messenger we don't actually know jairus doesn't say anything but he answered him do not fear only believe and she will be well again do not fear that is a tall order I mean, we can imagine how Jairus is feeling, the terror, the thought of losing his daughter here, the kind of horror he probably feels that he wasn't present but was off chasing after this Jesus guy who didn't even make it to his house in time. You can imagine how he's feeling and Jesus says, do not be afraid, simply believe. And we know that Jairus believes, again, because it's, it's not about some massive quantity. By simply believe, Jesus just means, take me to the house. And so he does. Pick up again in verse 51. And when Jesus came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. This is actually a good evidence that Jesus's earlier move to expose the woman to the crowd was for her good and wasn't about sort of him being noticed or something because he's in some ways going to do a more spectacular miracle here and he intentionally makes everyone leave and not see it that's probably because just as his actions with the woman were out of care for her now in many ways Jesus is doing is out of care for this girl and her parents recognizing that these wailing crowds of mourners would um would in many ways be disruptive to what's about to happen and then in verse 52 and all were weeping and mourning for her but he said do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping and they laughed at him knowing that she was dead so Jesus to be clear knows that this girl is dead too I mean it it, this the way the story plays out that's apparent Um, and it's not Jesus trying to be insensitive or dismissive because he does take the grief of death seriously. Interestingly, when Lazarus, his friend, dies, Jesus both says the same thing, that he is but asleep, but also weeps and is in turmoil and anger facing his grave before he raises Lazarus from the dead. But rather, this is that sleep in the New Testament is consistently how death is portrayed for believers. And the reason for that, of course, is that I mean, we we all get that sleep is kind of an analogy for death. And the great difference between the oblivion of sleep and the seeming oblivion of death is that sleep is something that we awaken from. It's only temporary. Whereas in our gut, we feel like death is forever. And so for Jesus to proclaim that this girl is asleep is, of course, to speak of and hint at what's about to happen. And then let's read that, what happens. It says, But taking the girl by the hand, Jesus called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Because of how matter-of-fact that is, it's easy for us to miss the power and the beauty of that. So let me read you, this is another way to tell this story. Um, This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I realize is a children's Bible, but this part of this story, in the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones tells it, consistently just, makes me tear up. So let me just, this is how the Jesus storybook Bible tells this moment. It says, Jesus walked into the little girl's bedroom and there lying in the corner in the shadows was the still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up rubbed her eyes as if she'd had a good night's sleep and leapt out of bed. In our stories, last week and this week, we've seen a series of pictures of Jesus's power. Jesus's power over natural disasters, like the storm that comes up on the sea. Jesus is powerful over demons, even a legion of demons, a military term, a whole battalion of demons comes out in Jesus with a word, defeats them. Jesus is powerful over disease and over the, the the uncleanness that accompanies it for this woman. And Jesus is powerful over death itself. This story is revolutionary within the story of scripture. Death is the great enemy in the story of the Bible. Even more than Satan or sin, death is the ultimate consequence, the defining reality of our condition. It is the curse that we are under. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Death in scripture includes both physical death and the spiritual death that precedes it. The death of distance from our creator, the death that is the loss of our true identity in him and and of communion with him, the spiritual death that afflicts us and that ultimately results in our physical death. Death has defined humanity, it is the fruit of our sin, and in this moment, Jesus overcomes it. And ultimately, of course, he will overcome it here, and with Lazarus, we have these temporary resuscitations, these moments where he brings people back to death, and those are declarations of his power over death, and then ultimately, in the resurrection, Jesus wins the final victory over death, and it no longer has any claim over him, And for us, it will not have a final claim on us either. So let's come back to the question. Why are we afraid? I think that there's at least two reasons, two reasons that this story speaks to. The first is that we are at times afraid because we don't believe that God can truly work good because we don't believe that god can truly work our good now this one is tricky because we all think that we do if we're in the church it's like sunday school 101 right we all think that we believe this but even in our stories we see people who sort of on some level know that god is powerful he can work good but they don't believe it in their hearts the disciples are like that, right? I mean, the storm comes and they wake Jesus up and say, master, save us. Clearly on some level, they understand that he's powerful, but nonetheless, they're amazed when he calms the storm and he chastises them for their lack of faith. The same with Jairus in the story. He comes to Jesus and asks him. He clearly has this faith that Jesus will heal, but nonetheless, he is astounded. He's amazed when Jesus actually does it. On some level, he had still not fully believed that God could work good. We say all of the right things, I think. We say that God is in control, that God's got this, that God is on the throne. But we spend so much time worrying as if that wasn't the case. We spend so little time praying, which, of course, is the the first thing we would do if we truly believed in God's power and greatness. We live in fear because on some gut heart level, we have not truly believed that God is greater than the powers of this world, that he has overcome them and is overcoming them and will overcome them. We don't really believe it. But of course, the point of these stories and of scripture is that God is those things that we said. He is in control. He is on the throne. And so that means practically what we need to do is first of all that we need to just meditate on that fact. We need to just take time to remind ourselves to think about the reality of God's power, to think about the fact that there is no force in creation that can stand against him. And particularly when we feel afraid, or when we're stressed or angry or those other things that can result from our fear, we need to kind of do a check on our hearts and ask, am I believing that God is stronger than this thing? Am I truly believing that God can work my good in this situation? Or have I, on some gut level, believed that this thing that I'm afraid of or angry about or stressed about, that this thing is more powerful than God? So that is the first question, or the first reason that we're afraid. And then the second reason is that I think we also fear because we don't believe that God will truly work our good. We don't believe he will do it, even though we believe on some level that he can. And in some ways, I think this is a trickier topic to discuss for a couple of reasons. First, I just want to name that one of the challenges and we're not going to dwell here this morning, but one of the challenges is that we often aren't actually interested in our true good. One of the hard things about trusting God is that on some level we say, I don't know if I can trust God, and it's because we know that what, what we're invested in is our comfort or our security in this life, um, that we're interested in some worldly thing, and we're not wrong that God might not give us that thing. Our true good does not preclude suffering in this life. Our true good does not preclude hard things happening to us. In fact, there are plenty of times when our true good includes that. And so I am about to tell you that God will work our true good. He will work good for us. But I want to name that up front because don't hear me promising what I'm not promising, right? I'm not promising you a car. I'm not promising you that Jesus is going to take away all the hard stuff in your life. I'm not promising you that he's going to make that frustrating coworker disappear. But he will work our good. He is able to and he will do it. And we can trust that that is true when we struggle to believe it for two reasons. Two reasons. First of all, because of God's character. Part of why we struggle to believe that God will work good for us is because we struggle to believe that God is good. One of the challenges of faith is that we have to trust in God's goodness because we often will not understand what he's doing. We often cannot understand what he is up to in the world. And so we can't look at him and say, oh, I I get this, I can explain this. Instead, we have to simply be able to say, I know what God is like, and therefore I know that he is trustworthy that we have to be able to approach God the way we would a good friend, for example. There are times where people we know well are doing something that we don't understand. And while obviously they're human and sinful, and we might ultimately have to conclude that they're doing it for wrong reasons, our initial posture with that friend is to say, look, I don't know what they're up to, but I do know them. I've had these years of experience with them. I've seen their character demonstrated, and I'm gonna trust in that. We're called to do that with God. And we can do that with God because he has revealed to us what his character is. He has revealed to us in, in his works in history and in scripture, but centrally, he has revealed it to us in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons for the incarnation, and one of the reasons that the gospel spends so much time telling us about what Jesus did in his life, the reason is not just like there was this guy Jesus and then the crucifixion and resurrection, There's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is so that we can, in these stories, see Jesus's character demonstrated over and over. And we need to see that, because, of course, Jesus is God. I remember talking to a young woman a little while back, and she very perceptively, as we tried to talk through her struggles with God and suffering in the world, she said, Look, I'm not mad at Jesus. I, Jesus is great. I love Jesus. It's God I have a problem with. And look, yes, she's theologically incorrect, but that so adequately I think expresses a reality for many of my heart, or for many of our hearts, for for my heart at times that that we feel like there's a disconnect. But the, the powerful truth of scripture is that the character of Jesus is God himself entering our story. And so what Jesus does and says and the way he acts is God speaking and acting in those ways. And we can come to know the character of God through Jesus Christ. So think about Jesus in the Gospels. His kindness and humility and patience, and courage, and directness, the way he associates with all kinds of people, his wisdom, his grace. Do you trust that Jesus? Would he do what is truly good for you? God is that Jesus. He's exactly like that. And the more we recognize that reality of his character, the more we're able to trust him. So that's part of it. That we can trust that God will work our true good because of his character demonstrated in Jesus. And of course, while we're not there yet in the story, ultimately demonstrated in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. But there's another thing too. I also think that this um, that part of why we struggle to believe that actually has to do with our faith. It has to do with our faith, which is to say, we said already that it is simply faith, the existence of faith, right? The presence of faith that is all that we need for God to work good for us. We do not need more faith than this woman, but there are many times, I think, where we have failed to believe that. And so our fear comes not so much because we don't feel that we can trust God, but because we don't feel that we can trust ourselves. And that's because we bought into the idea that God will work good for us if. He will work it if. If we are diligent enough in keeping the commandments. If we believe hard enough or pray hard enough. If we kick that... That sin issue that we have if we give more money if we volunteer more at the church whatever it is on some heart level we believe that if we do more things then god will bless us and work good for us and save us and redeem us but if we don't then we live in fear and because you feel like you can never do enough that fear rules you and that is where we need to again be reminded that it is not the amount of our faith that matters Not the amount of our diligence and virtue. The question of our salvation and the question, therefore, of God seeking our good is simply whether we have trusted Him, even if it's as weak and shaky as the trust of this woman. In fact, that idea that God will work good for us if, fill in the blank, that's actually an enemy of the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to have. It will cause us to trust Him less because it's causing us to trust in ourselves more. But the more that we trust in and rest in him, the more we will find ourselves delivered from fear. And as we arrive at that point, that taken together, I think, is the answer to why we are afraid. We're afraid, first of all, because we don't believe that God can work our good. And to that, we need to remind ourselves that he can, that this same Jesus who shows his power in these stories over disasters and demons and disease and death, that, that Jesus is the one who is on the throne today and who is at work in and for us today and that nothing can stand against his rule and reign for us. And we can be afraid because we believe that God won't work our good. To that we simply need to be reminded that he will. Jesus has demonstrated his character in these stories and his character at the cross and his character is one of love and sacrifice for his sheep and all he asks you to do is reach out and receive that by faith and to trust in that and rest in that and as you do that what you will begin to find in your heart that there's no longer any need to be afraid. Because it is this Jesus who reigns for us and holds us in our hands. Let's pray. Father, I give thanks to you for your goodness and greatness, for your power and mercy, for the fact that you rule over all things and the fact that you call us sons and daughters by your grace. Father, I pray that we might, in those truths, find rest for our souls, comfort and hope and encouragement. I pray that we would return more and more to Jesus Christ as the author and perfecter of our faiths, the God-man who has revealed you to us and now rules with you in the Holy Spirit. Father, may that build us up in courage, may that build us up in comfort, may that build us up in hope, so that we might speak to the world that hope that we have in Jesus Christ and that we and those we meet might be changed. We pray all of this in his great name. Amen.